I fell in love with the product. I didn't do any research about the structure of the company and any fundamental analysis. I just went and bought it. By the way, at this point, I'm an advisor and I tell people to do all this stuff all the time. And I didn't do any of it. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Joe Saul Sihai. Joe, are you ready to rock? I am ready to rock. I can't believe I made it. I'm really here. Woohoo! Let's do it. Well, why don't you give, tell the audience a little bit about your background? Sure. I was a financial planner for 16 years, and I'm a guy that didn't come initially from the financial planning industry. I'm a guy who actually was an English major in college and had very little financial knowledge before I became an advisor advising other people. But you know the way the business works. Well, maybe a lot of your listeners don't know the way the business works in America, which is that it's a big cattle call of a lot of people. And I had a friend that worked for one of the big firms, and the quote was, quote, we don't normally hire people like you, but I think you'd be good at this. And I grew up in a small town in West Michigan, and I didn't know what an engineer was. What I know since then is I would have become an engineer had I known. Anyway, I not only became a financial planner, I became a very good one. I ended up managing not a huge amount of money, about $65 million, so not a small practice, but not a huge one. But more importantly, I became a spokesperson for American Express and Ameriprise, one of 12 advisors in the nation that was allowed to speak first on behalf of the company in the media and then go through compliance later. And for people that don't know what compliance is, it is this machine of legal people who make sure that nobody ever says anything important ever <laughs> with the big firms. So I was one of the few people that they trusted to go on any major media and not say the wrong thing. So after that, I sold my business when I was 40. That's a whole long story. But I decided I wanted to do something else, which was become a high school teacher and a track coach. Instead of doing that, I was about a year into my journey to becoming a teacher and uh, started writing scripts for my friends that were doing media, started writing client service letters for people, and I was in shorts and a t-shirt, and I realized, sadly, I was making more than a first-year teacher was making, and I was having a lot of fun doing it. That ultimately became a blog, which then we turned into a podcast. Now I've been podcasting eight years. I'm the creator and co-host of a show that is called The Stacky Benjamin Show, which is a very light introductory show helping people get into personal finance that might not really care about personal finance. Got it. And recently, Benjamin's, I think, was appearing on Twitter between some politicians. It's all about the Benjamins, but I <laughs> wanted to ask you to explain to my audience, some of them who are not living in the US and they may not be up on the slang, what the heck does stacking Benjamins mean? That's right. It was originally, I think it was a bunch of rappers talking about stacking $100 bills. So Mr. Benjamin is Benjamin Franklin on the $100 bill. And so stacking Benjamin, stacking hundreds. Some of our, some of our listeners though are interested in stacking $5, $10. Like we have people joking that they're stacking Lincolns or Washingtons. They're working their way up. Yeah. I remember in my day, it was big deal when you say slap me a Jackson. 
Right. <laughs> Meaning, I think that's a $20 bill, right? No. Yeah. We want those days back. Let's yes. Get those back. Yes. Those are the days of Jackson's and nickel bags. Right. <laughs> that's <laughs> a whole different podcast. But we won't go in there. Yes. <laughs> that's it. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to us and then tell us your story. Well, I'm a guy who has always liked experimenting with different investment philosophies and investment strategies. I've also been a forward thinker in technology. So I remember the first time I walked into a Best Buy and I saw this miracle called XM Radio. And I thought the XM was the coolest thing. I've always liked radio. I mean, I'm a podcaster now. I still love radio. I love modern radio like what you and I do. So then though, if you remember the idea of having a satellite with hundreds of channels and I can listen to all my favorite sports, I can listen to all my favorite business news, comedy, I love old time radio. I can have all this in one place. That would be phenomenal. And I thought this is the future. This is going to be amazing. And it took me forever to buy a satellite radio. It took me, it probably like anything that I buy, it took me a good nine or 10 months of continuing to research, think about if I really needed it, do I really need a subscription for my radio? So I went through all kinds of research. I finally bought one and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Thought it was amazing. Right after they brought in a few different people, I remember they brought in Martha Stewart, I remember they, of course, brought in Howard. I'm just in his name. Thank you. (laughs) They brought in Howard Stern. They brought in all these people. And I thought, well, now this thing's going to the moon. And it's so funny. Well, I guess I won't spoil it. But I bought the stock. So I buy the stock. So you like the idea and then you bought the stock. That's that's common advice. And I bought it. I bought it for $2.85. Yep. And by the way, I bought 1,000 shares at $2.85. So you can tell I was a big spender in this one, you right? You all in. Yes. Not a huge investment, but this is easily my dumbest investment. And not that that stuff was bad, right? I mean, some of these things like buy what you know, know the product, I knew that inside and out. I can talk later about what I didn't do, but all these things about knowing a lot about the company and how they do business, love that. Didn't do any fundamental analysis whatsoever, but that's a whole different thing. So I ride this stock up to $30 a share. XM's doing phenomenally well. And I realize, of course, like any smart investor, Andrew, you've got to diversify. You can't stay here. And this is still an emerging technology. And now over this time, by the way, I've finally done some research. And my research says they've way overpaid Howard Stern. They've way overpaid all these people. The company's path to profitability looks precarious. They're saddled with tons of debt. I don't know if this ride's going to continue. So I decide initially I'm going to cut my position in half. So I place a stop loss on 500 shares and half of it. And I put it just below, which is a strategy I I like to do rather than sell at the market. I might lose a little bit, but if it goes on a tear the next day, like who knows? And by the way, I'm happy if I get $29.50, right? Well, the stock continues to go up. I end up getting, I think, like $30.25. Now I have half this money in cash. 
what I've described to you so far, even though it was dumb, I fell in love with the product. I didn't do any research about the structure of the company and any fundamental analysis. I just went and bought it. By the way, at this point, I'm an advisor and I tell people to do all this stuff all the time. And I didn't do any of it. Of course, then again, I mean, in fairness to me, not a huge amount of money. You know, I'm not throwing a lot of money at it. But still, I take half the money. This is the dumb investment. I take this half that I have and I think, well, XM isn't probably going to do it but they have this competitor called Sirius. And I think that one of these two companies is clearly going to succeed. XM might not succeed. Sirius might not succeed, but one of them is going to, somebody's going to be standing here. I'm going to take the half of it. And I took the money that I took out of XM and I invested it in Sirius satellite radio. Unbelievable. <laughs> just, just, and for people that don't know why this is a dumb thing, you're not diversifying at all. You've got two companies that are doing the same exact thing. Sirius in this war for dominance is also settling themselves with a bunch of debt. They have pretty much the same product. When XM goes up, Sirius goes up. XM goes down, Sirius goes down. Not only that, because of the fact that one of them was going to fail, the logical thing for the other one to do was to merge them back together or merge them together for the first time. So I ended up with a single stock that was Sirius XM satellite radio. So we have a description for this, which is called changing seats on the Titanic. Right, <laughs> exactly. Exactly it. I have other similar dumb ones, which are that I, you know, living in Detroit back in the 2007, 2008 crisis, I thought, there's no way the government's going to let these companies go under. So General Motors preferred stock went into that too. The thing, the thing that's interesting there, by the way, is that that one I was truly too close to. I had clients in the auto industry, very smart people. A lot of these people, vice presidents of the companies. I thought there's no way with all these, and it's so important to America, there's no way they're going to let them go under. Yeah. So what did you learn from this experience? Well, I learned the power, number one, of, of true diversification. And if you're going to get off the ride, you need to get into a different industry. I could have. I mean, if you think about if I wanted to leave this money in a position that was still technology, still maybe emerging technology, I don't know at the time that the two of them merged how emerging it was anymore. But if I wanted to stay in emerging technology, find something in a completely different area, like maybe something exciting happening in water, maybe, or something exciting happening in biotech, you know, find some other emerging area. But taking two companies where there's only two competitors and deciding to diverse, deciding to bet on both of them because one of these companies has to win. Yeah. It's something, by the way, Andrew, I clearly wouldn't have told a client of mine to do. I would have looked my client in the eye and say, are you kidding me? That's you not diversification. You, you may have said, is this a long, short trade? <laughs> right. Right. Where for the audience, those people listening, you know, that I think there's going to be one winner and one loser in this industry. And I'm going to bet that that one winner is going to, I'm going to try to make money when the winner's going up and I'm going to try to make money by picking the loser and short that one. So, but yeah. then I'd have to bet, but then I have to bet which one's which. That's tough. It's a lot easier yeah. to just go, ah, I'll just put it in both of them. And especially with those two companies, you know, both of them looked really bad. 
they both could have gone under. Mm-hmm. And that's the funny thing is that I thought the consolidation in that industry and American adoption and worldwide adoption of satellite radio, that they would use that economy of scale. It's almost like we talk about with like Uber and Lyft thinking and some of these companies that are doing IPOs lately, right? Where we think that we think that because they're going to have WeWork, because they're going to have more customers, that's somehow going to equate to a business model that actually makes sense versus what they're doing now. Yep. I fell into that fallacy when I kept betting on this industry. And I think the other thing that, that, to keep in mind too is that you know we want to think about our overall exposure and we want to look at our, our risk. And sometimes the way we look at it traditionally is to say, you know, oh, what's our exposure to that sector? So first way of trying to traditionally manage our portfolio is to say, well, I don't want to have too much in any one sector. But the other one is also understanding your factor exposure. So you may have companies in, in different sectors that both actually move the same way when interest rates move, when oil moves. Right. And so, you know, there's, there's many different ways that we can look at risk. But I think in this case, maybe I'll, I'll outline some of the things that I take away from it. I mean, the first thing, you know, good news, you did your research. Most people, out of all the stories that I've heard, 150 interviews and about 500 written, submitted stories, I can say that the number one mistake that people make is they fail to do their research. So you had a thesis, you had an idea, it worked, you made, you know, some money on it. And then I think it just had, had to do with the idea of what do I do with my gains and how well, do I allocate it? Right. Because that's the problem. And maybe to put the pin on the end of this story, then I wrote it back down to two. Yes. We didn't get to the actual final ending <laughs> no, of the story. Yes. Could you just end the story for us there? Yes. Yeah. Well, no, that was actually it, Andrew. So then I, I bought both of them. They consolidated and I wrote them back down to my original starting spot below my starting spot ta-da and then I sold and then you sold okay and one last thing okay so one last question I want to ask you about that is that once you realize that okay this is going wrong and things started falling what was going on in your head how were you processing that or you just say it's just so small I'm not even worried about it and particularly you know financial professionals I have to say tend to be the worst because the financial professionals first of all they're focused on their clients which is great but also a lot of times they put their own investments, either they put them in a, a bottom drawer or they're just right on the roller coaster ride of the market. And so yes. they're just going up and down and they're doing all these trades. And in the end, they probably lose more than they gain for themselves. Well, generally, that's why I use index funds with the majority of my money and my sandbox money, which is what this was a part of. I didn't do that. Two things happened. Number one, I didn't pay that close attention, like you were saying, because mm-hmm. when I sold it, it was it was during the whole financial downturn. I was worried about my clients, worried about, you know, the bigger part of my portfolio. But also, I thought, and this is true, by the way, I think I correctly thought that volatility comes with that industry. And that, that I've got to be okay with a fairly high, fairly high standard deviation. So I expected it to be on a roller coaster. But if I go back to that time, also bad news follow bad news very quick that sent those stocks down. And at one point, it looked like they might completely go bankrupt. And they ended up, the combined company ended up getting some funding later on that saved them. And, you know, now they're on much firmer footing. But I thought that that was just a piece of having that amount of risk. So as it went down, 
I kept thinking, should I put a stop loss on this so that during the day I can just get out at any point? And I decided not to. I actually, and I'll usually, you know, put a stop loss on like to sell it like I did the first time. When I sold it, ultimately, I didn't use a stop loss. I just got out. And the reason I got out was because of a great book that I'd read called Trading Rules, which is from the late 1990s. And it's a guy working on the Chicago Exchange and doing something far more risky with these commodities contracts that, you know, 99% of people don't do. And one of his trading rules was, and I firmly believe this, if you've done your homework and you like a position, buy it because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You have to like it at the price it's at. Like having this feeling that, well, I'm going to hold on for a week because I think that a week from now, I'm going to be able to predict where the market is. You know, he makes a great case for, are you kidding me? Nobody knows where, if you think your head is smart enough to know where the market is, you don't understand the risk of investing. And then also when you sell, if you have a reason for selling, yeah, you might, you might place a stop loss and it might go up and you might get a little money out of it. But at that point, I wanted to deploy that money in a different area that was fraught with an equal amount of risk mm. <laughs> that I thought that I, I did much better homework on. And I thought that the return on investment was actually there. And I couldn't see an end out of the tunnel for satellite radio. I couldn't see a place where that was going to get the big returns that I wanted from my sandbox. Got it. And from that book, Trading Rules, it sounds a little bit like have your system and follow it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that a lot of people try, you know, when we're young, we're we're reading every book, we're trying to find the people that are like us and all that. But in the end, successful investors are people who start to construct their own framework, their own system, and then they follow that system. And it's going to lose sometimes and it's going to win sometimes. But having that structure allows you to get past some of the emotional stuff too. Well, and another book that proves your point, Andrew, a great book that I like, and I think there's even a second and a third one of this series. A guy, I believe his name is Jack Schwartz, wrote a series called uh, Stock Market Wizards. Wizards. And what I love about that book, <laughs> what I love about that book, I love that you're pointing to it right now. Yeah. I love the fact that everybody has a different system. And I've told clients this back in the day, but the thing that they don't do is skip from system to system to system. They all work their system. And so to me, the biggest mistake I ever saw my clients have back when I was a financial advisor is they would, they would just skip from thing to thing to thing to thing. You've got to go deep with what you do. And at that point, mine was very much becoming much more heavy-duty fundamental analysis, not technical analysis at all, mm. but a lot of fundamental analysis and betting on companies that had a free cash flow and much less debt and had rising revenues over time. Those were some of my screens that I look for to pick mm. companies that I thought were much more likely winners. Yeah. I'm glad that you raised that book, Stock Market Wizards, because I definitely recall that I couldn't put my finger on it. But now that you mention it, it kind of gave me permission to say, there's many ways to skin a cat. Each of these guys is doing it a different way. And it's cool. It's not like these guys are trying to say, oh, I want to do it like that guy or like that guy. And that really, that book and the whole series, I think he's even, he's expanded it into other areas. So, you know, pretty amazing. Yeah, very, very amazing series. Highly recommend for anybody. So based on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one 
action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Well, I would recommend two things. Number one, before you make an investment, I agree with what Peter Lynch says. Peter Lynch, who famously ran Magellan for a long time. In his book, Beat the Street, he talks about buying what you know. And a lot of investors, they stop there. And Peter Lynch says, that's where you start. That's not where you end. And I love Sirius. I loved radio. I thought this was a future radio. That stuff is all true, but that's just my starting point. From there, I have to make sure that I understand the fundamentals of the company before I get into the company. I needed to know how much debt they were in, and I needed to have a much better feeling about profitability. And had I done that, I wouldn't have even bought a thousand shares of, of that initial thing, even though it went well, right? Even though the first half of that, those two trades went really well. I wouldn't have made that trade. I would have made a different trade. And we might be sitting here talking about the most brilliant thing I'd done with, with a couple thousand bucks. Well, it's a great lesson for the audience because we are told often, you know, to look for things that we like, services, companies that we like. And one of my written stories, he didn't come on the show, a friend of mine, Chris, and he basically talked about how he was like one of the first Amazon Prime customers. And he totally bought into the service. He loved it but he didn't invest. And so, you know, the first thing that you're talking about, and I think you illustrate well, is finding a theme or a company or industry that you understand and you like. That's the first step and that's great. And now what you've also told us is that that is literally step number one. And the following steps are about the research. Now, I wanted to mention, Joe, about a situation that I'm in right now where one of my businesses, my coffee business, my business partner and I have been talking about a particular decision we've got to make about a big expansion. I mean, way outside of what we've done. And he's been spending a lot of time working on it. And just last night he was updating me on the phone and I immediately started picking it apart, you know, and he and I were debating it and all that. And then I realized that one of the things I've learned from this podcast is I think it's really something I didn't think about before, but it's really important to separate your research on return from risk. And so with him, what we agreed upon is that we're going to set up a date where we just sit down and look at the amazing opportunity that this is. How are we going to calculate that? How are we going to, how would we measure that? Let's just get excited about this idea and give ourselves permission to do that. And then the next day, we're going to take off that hat and we're going to sit down and we're just going to say, this is not about trying to defend that idea. It's not about that emotional struggle either between him wanting this and me wanting that or something. It's about, let's rip this thing apart. What yeah. are the risks? And I think once we identify the core risks, rank them, look at the, the damage that they could cause, the probability of them, then it, it allows us to go back to the return and think about it in a, in a whole nother way. And so I would just add on to you know, what you've shared, that learning that I've got from all of my guests on the show. That's interesting because I just finished, I'm full of books today, apparently, but I just finished Bob Iger's autobiography which was fantastic. It's called Ride of a Lifetime. And generally, CEO biographies or autobiographies feel like they were written with a lawyer sitting right behind them and it's all. But he gets really frank about situations like the time that that child at the Grand Floridian got pulled in by an alligator, if you remember that story. Mm. When he talks about buying Pixar, Disney buying Pixar, he went to the table with Steve Jobs 
and Steve Jobs went right to the whiteboard, Andrew, and did exactly what you said. He said, okay, let's put all the positives up here. And he said they put three positives. And then how many negatives? And there were like 15 negatives. And Iger said, he goes, well, I can see that we're done. And Steve Jobs said, to his credit, he goes, no, 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 no. The right one positive can beat all of those negatives, which is absolutely the truth. And it was really inspiring. And of course, even though there were a lot of negatives, Pixar did very well, of course, under Disney. Yeah. And the point is separating that allowed that to be seen more clearly. So fantastic. All right. Well, last, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? My number one goal actually with our podcast is develop a team behind it. We've won, I feel very fortunate. We've won all kinds of awards with the show. The show has done very, very well. Kiplinger called us the best podcast in their magazine about a year and a half ago. Art of Manliness said that we were on the list of the top podcast men need to listen to. Thestreet.com just put us on the list of top investing podcasts, even though we're really not an investing podcast, but I'll take it thanks to them. But it really has been just our passion that does that. And now it's building a team in the background so that we can continue to do that but do it more as a business instead of just a couple dudes with some stuff to say, you know, that is really what I'm working on the next year is taking this passion project of stacking Benjamins and making it a business. Fantastic. And I just was going to mention that when my father passed away about three years ago, my mother decided, you know, we talked about it and she came to Thailand to live with me. So, well, you know, I basically hang out in my mom's living room our living room in our apartment in Bangkok. So let me, let me just ask the question. What's this whole thing about living with in mom's basement is where you guys are doing it or have done it. We do. We do the show live three days a week from mom's basement and it's free rent. But actually, you know, the genesis of that was that every podcaster is running away from the fact that they're podcasting from somebody's basement and we said, you know, we're just going to own it, Andrew. We're, we're just going to own the fact that we are in the basement and it's okay. I was listening to, remember the big show, Serial? Yeah. Sarah Koenig, the host of Serial, I saw her at a podcasting conference and she told the story that they made Serial from her basement and a member of her family would flush the toilet just above her head and she would have to stop and edit all that out. <laughs> because of all those noises. And you think about how that's produced by This American Life. Oh, I know. It's this, it's this huge thing. And she's a little less glamorous. Movie. Yeah. A lot of it's inside jokes, by the yes. way. At the time also, I was living in Texas and the area where we lived in, we didn't even have basements. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I have a closet in my house. I cleaned it out. I put in some foam for soundproofing and my original episodes I would record by just stepping into the closet. You were in the closet. (laughs) And then I came out of the closet. How about that? (laughs) And here I am. Well, there we go. Listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Joe, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And I want to always congratulate you and others that have come on the show to say congratulations. You've had the willingness to take your biggest loss and turn it into 
the biggest learning experience for our listeners. So do you have any parting words for the audience? Satellite radio, probably not. <laughs> Stay away from that industry and listen to Stacking Benjamins. That's my advice for you. All right. That's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our risk. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.